0: Asking for it. Subscribe now.
1: This is a CBC podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the archives. Today, looking back at one of the most erudite, influential, and imaginative writers, England's Dame Antonia Byatt, the novelist A.S. Byatt, who died earlier this month after a long illness. She was 87. Among the outpouring of tributes to A.S. Byatt upon the news of her death was this by fellow novelist Philip Hensher. With her goes part of the conscience of English fiction, its heart, its power to think, its capacity for feeling both wild and exact. She was one of the most generous people I ever knew, he said. I was fortunate enough to interview A.S. Byatt five times over the years, and each occasion was pure pleasure, a unique mix of remarkable intellect, insight, and emotion. She spoke candidly about how grief became her subject after her 11-year-old son was killed by a drunken driver, or about the legal complications of getting a divorce in 1960s Britain. A.S. Byatt was born in Sheffield in Yorkshire, England, in 1936, the oldest of four children. She studied at Cambridge and Oxford and was headed for an academic career, but lost her scholarship when she got married. So instead of a thesis on 17th century religious allegory, she started writing fiction. Her debut novel, Shadow of the Sun, was published in 1964, the year after A Summer Birdcage, the first novel by her younger sister, Margaret Drabble. In 1978, Byatt came up with the first of a quartet of novels, The Virgin in the Garden, followed by Still Life in 1985. But her career really divides into two, before and after Possession, the 1990 novel that won the Booker Prize and the richest cash award at the time, the Irish Times Aer Lingus International Fiction Prize. It brought her enormous popular success in North America as well as England, and was later made into a movie starring Gwyneth Paltrow. Possession operates on a number of levels. The Victorian love story between two poets, a modern tentative love story between two scholars, and a literary detective story. Again, using mock Victorian documents, Byatt followed up Possession with a pair of novellas, Angels and Insects, one of which was also made into a movie starring Mark Rylance and Kristen Scott Thomas. She was also an accomplished writer of short stories. After publishing Babel Tower in the mid-1990s, Byatt completed her quartet of novels with A Whistling Woman in 2002. As was always the case, these books not only pick up the lives of her main characters, but are also about many other things, from theories of education to the judicial system, from religious extremism to scientific investigation. Seven years later, A.S. Byatt was back with a whole new set of characters, stories, and preoccupations in a world that was itself explosively changing. Her 2009 novel, The Children's Book, is a big, ambitious, exceptionally rich story set in the Edwardian era, though it begins in 1895, a few years before the death of Queen Victoria. Everything is in motion. Class, art, feminism, finances, and especially it's the golden age of children's literature. A.S. Byatt launched the children's book in Canada when she was in Montreal to receive the $10,000 Grand Prix at the Blue Metropolis International Literary Festival. And that's where we spoke on stage to an overflow audience. Just a note, this conversation includes reference to suicide. You've said that your your books are thick with the presence of other books, and your new novel, The Children's Book, is no exception. And although it, it's a very adult book, it's infused with works from the early 20th century golden age of children's literature. Peter Pan, The Railway Children, Fairy Tales. How much did these works form part of your own
0: childhood reading? They constituted... I was about to say all my own childhood reading, but in fact, I ran through all the ones in the house because I did nothing but read. So then I moved on to Dickens and Sir Walter Scott and saw no difference, in fact. I mean, sort of Mowgli and Oliver Twist, it was all the same. It was the books I read. But looking back on it, I think it was Kipling I particularly loved. I saw Peter Pan in Leeds during the war. It was before the end of the war when I, and I I was nine when the war ended, so I must have been very little. And I remember thinking, how could ever anybody invite anything like this? But the really odd thing was I identified with the writer. I thought, I have got to make something. I can only have been about seven, and I, I just felt sort of desperate to write something. I I didn't feel I wanted to live in the Neverland. I knew I didn't, but um, I wanted to make something like that.
1: You you were still very young during the Second World War. How do you think the war colored your reading experiences?
0: It's hard to remember and hard to work it out. I think apart from the fact that my father wasn't there at all, they tried to keep the war from us. Because you were in Sheffield. No, I was in somewhere called Pontefract by then. Where you already was,
1: moved out of Sheffield because, because of the, of the bombs. Yes,
0: yeah. and I was in the countryside, and there wasn't much else to do but read, and life was in fact very slow and peculiarly peaceful. One huge bomb fell. And we were sitting on, what my mother said afterwards, it was totally daft, we were sitting on an enormous heap of glass bottles (laughs) under the stairs when it fell. And we heard it fall, but it didn't fall near us and so no bottles broke. Um, And that was the one bomb that fell near Pontefract. And they took its guts out and turned it into a collecting machine where you drop pennies in for the people who had lost their houses in the bombing. It was all very weird, I did nothing but read, really. You've you've said that as a child, fairy stories weren't more
1: real to you than the real world, but they were what you needed to complete it.
0: How so? The real world was intensely boring. I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody of even my children's generation has experienced boredom the way we did. That's one answer. I mean, it just went boringly on. You got up and did the same things. And you went boringly to bed very, very early and were told to go to sleep when you weren't tired. (laughs) And at that point, I would start reading. If it was summer, you could read because there was light. And if it was winter, you had a torch and you got under the bedclothes and secretly read. And it gave one... I mean, at the lowest level, it gave one variety to read fairy stories. But it also gave one... I don't think I knew it when I was a child, but there is a sense I have now that everybody needs, as it were, an unreal world to complete the real world that they have to inhabit. And I am not a religious person, and when I was told religion, I was taken to church and offered the unreal world or unseen world of religion. I found that very disturbing and would have nothing to do with it, whereas nobody told me that a fairy story was true. Why did you find the religious part disturbing? Because it seemed to me that it probably wasn't true and was in fact the same as the fairy stories, but somebody was saying it wasn't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is the view of a (laughs) five-year-old who felt very guilty, of course. She felt that she had probably been very, very wicked to think that. But nevertheless, that was what I thought. And... Your parents,
1: were they big readers also?
0: Oh, yes. The house was full of books. My mother and father had been in the same class at school in Mexborough, in the South Yorkshire coalfield. And my mother had read English at Cambridge. My father read law. But half the books I thought I'd inherited from my mother, I subsequently found, had his name in it. They, they read all the same things. They talked the same reading and when we went on holiday to the Yorkshire coast in the car, they would recite bits of Shakespeare, and they would recite Wordsworth and, and Keats. And they kept books, which is what I almost most loved about them. Under their seats in the car were the right books in case they forgot anything they were quoting. <laughs> so, so, yes, we were, we were an intensely bookish family, and books were, in fact, the things that most mattered to all of us, I think.
1: And did your did your mother tell stories or did your parents read to you?
0: No, I, I wish she had, but the truth was she didn't. She was anxious and angry all the way through the war, except when she had a job as a senior English master at the local boys' grammar school. And she hadn't been allowed to teach when she was first married because in Britain at that time there were only jobs in schools for unmarried women and men who had to support a family. A married woman was not allowed to teach. But suddenly this went when they all went off to fight. So she got to teach. And I think this was the only time in her life when she was happy. And this has profoundly affected me. And she was working. And she came home from school. And she didn't tell me stories, but she did tell me what had happened in school, and she would unpack a package and a boy had given her several newts so we had to get a glass case to keep them in, and she came home one that day. She... That, oh, that was a good thing that the boy was a good thing, we really newts. enjoyed the newts. Um, <laughs> but she thought they were entirely aquatic, and when they crawled out, because they're not, they're sort of, they went under the gas cooker and died a horrible death. <laughs> and and we, were, we were all lying on the floor trying to get these newts out from under the gas cooker and it didn't work Um, the hedgehogs were even worse (laughs) (laughs) because they had fleas Um, and there was a boy that gave my mother a hedgehog and we had it for a bit and then she said we can't go on like this, we'll take it and release it in the field at the bottom of the garden so we did that and the next day the boy said to my mother and how is the hedgehog and my mother said unfortunately it got away so the day after that there was another hedgehog (laughs) And this went on rather like that. But my mother, was, my mother was good in those days. And ever after, she was never... I mean, there must have been times when she was happy, but I remember her as unhappy.
1: You said that the fact that she was happy while she taught had a huge impact on you. In, in what way?
0: Well, it taught me that women must work. That if you wanted to work, you must work. I mean, she said frequently that she had sacrificed... Her work in order to look after her family. And I thought there must be a way in which young women can do both because it's not very good for the family. If you're aware of somebody having sacrificed their work for you, you know, it makes you very unhappy. And then everybody's unhappy. Um, I think this is one of the most important things in my life. How did your
1: childhood reading influence your ideas on, on what fiction should do for grown ups?
0: I think it probably saved me from two ideas which I think are wrong... Well, I think I don't want anyway about writing fiction. It never occurred to me that writing should be self-expression. Everything I liked was nothing to do with the author. Um, I liked Jane Austen, I liked Dickens, I liked Sir Walter Scott. When I grew up, I liked George Eliot, I loved Shakespeare. In none of those was I being asked to sympathize with the predicament, or the intelligence, or the self-obsession of the author. So I grew up thinking that writing was a matter of looking out, at finding something else to think about, something that was really exciting, that extended your world. And I think the other thing I never thought, either as a child or as a woman, was that what Matthew Arnold said was that art was a criticism of society. I really don't think it's there to criticize. I think the important thing is to understand first. And the second thing is that, which I got from the fairy stories, is that there's no point in doing it if it doesn't give pleasure. Somebody who writes fiction is making a world with which people can understand the world. Then if they want to go and change the world, they can. But it's not the same as setting out with a mission, and I've never had a mission. I wouldn't know where to find one.
1: (laughs) A.S. Byatt, your new novel, The Children's Book, has a colorful cast of characters, both children and adults, and one is Olive Wellwood, and she's the mother of many children and a successful author of children's literature. What made you want to create a character like Olive?
0: I got interested in children's book writers... I've always been interested in children's book writers, but it suddenly occurred to me quite a long time ago that their children are not happy. And I think the thing that really set me off was realising that their children tend to commit suicide. And the particular case is that of Kenneth Graham. And Kenneth Graham wrote The Wind in the Willows ostensibly for his only son, who was known as Mouse, who was a boy who was born with an eye defect which his parents simply refused to acknowledge he had, and who was, in fact, obviously, if you read the biography of Kenneth Graham, an extremely unhappy and aggressive little boy who was known for rushing at people and beating them up. And they sent him to various schools where he was sent back again, including rugby. Um, When he was a little boy in London, he lay down in front of automobiles, which in Those days were a new thing. So they sent him to the seaside with his nanny. And as far as I can see, they spent not very much time with him. And Kenneth Graham wrote him letters in which he created this beautiful world of the wind in the willows. And Kenneth Graham said he wrote the wind in the willows because there was none of that dreary sex stuff in it. And he liked putting his world full of animals. I mean, the world was obviously made for Kenneth Graham. And when Mouse got to be a young man, Kenneth Graham, by hook or by crook, got him into Oxford. Didn't get in on his own merits. A Poor kid stood up one night having drunk two glasses of pork, which he didn't usually do, and went out and lay on the railway line. And Kenneth Graham and his wife said it was an accident, of course. And I thought there's something wrong with this. And then I discovered that Alison Utley who was the great children's book writer of my childhood, her son had killed himself by, as a grown man by getting into a car and driving himself off Beachy Head, as well as her husband killing himself. And she seems to have been such a nice, mild, good woman. And, <laughs> um, and then I just, oh, the boys adopted by Sir James Barry, two probably killed themselves, one as an undergraduate, and one as a grown-up publisher. I mean, he certainly killed himself because he jumped under a train at Sloan Square, but possibly not for that reason. So I thought there's something very strange about the relationship between children and the, children's and book And A. Milne's
1: son, also I remember reading, was very unhappy. He's
0: desperately unhappy, but he, he had the good sense simply to write a very angry memoir. Rather than kill himself, yeah. <laughs> yeah which was a very good survival tactic, and I think... <laughs> And, of course, um, E. Nesbitt, who is nearer my heroine than any of these people, her children weren't exactly happy, but they didn't kill themselves, though some of them turned out not to be her children. The plot
1: thickens. (laughs) So, in creating a character like all of it's because you were intrigued by uh, this idea of these children's book authors whose own children were so very unhappy.
0: Yes. I mean, I, I, in a sense, I got myself into a mess because I made Olive very highly sexed, or slightly highly sexed, we should say, not appallingly highly sexed. <laughs> anyway, normally sexed. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 what I think is that most of the children's book writers were certainly undersexed, and that was their problem. They wanted to remain children, and she didn't. So in a sense, I chose an anomalous one and had to deal with what I had done.
1: Because Olive writes an ongoing story for each of her children, which she continues to add to as they get older. This is aside from the fairy stories and other books that she's publishing. Each of Olive's stories involve a child who passes into another world, and it can be through a tree root, a grandfather clock, a a crack in a teapot, or a hole in a stone. What do you think this interest in parallel and often underground
0: fantasy worlds is, is all about? I think it's partly a basic thing that children have. They want to get through another door into another place. Look at all the wonderful doors that Alice is desperately trying to get through in Alice in Wonderland. She's either too big or she's too little. When she gets through, all she finds is something else with another door. Um, I, I remember doors in my childhood. I remember my brother being given a large lorry and he desperately tried to open the door of the cabin and get into it, and wept and wept and wept because he wasn't small enough. Um, there's, something, there's a sense of there always being something else out there, and again, it's the world of the unreal story, which is just behind the door.
1: E. in your novel, the adults aren't just interested in childhood. They, they often behave in, in somewhat childlike ways, for instance, uh, they, don't, they write children's stories, they dress up for fairy or fantasy plays, go to puppet shows, run around naked at summer camps. And what, what's this all
0: about? It really is partly with being released from being Victorians. The Queen Victoria and her sort of very strong moral sense of how people should behave, which, of course, I've just realized goes back to an even earlier age. You know, she was a German lady of a certain rigidity of upbringing and she imposed that on the court which in a way imposed it on the country and then you begin to get a kind of rebellion coming and at the end of the century in the beginning of the 20th century everybody rather as as in the 1960s was interested in freedom and they were experimenting with freedom the way they were saying why should we wear all these clothes Or, why don't we behave like ancient Greek gods and rush around in the woods? Um, Added to which, they had no other form of amusement. I mean, they didn't have anything like television or the kind of music we now have. So they made their own entertainment, which meant that everybody would put on plays by Shakespeare and everybody would put on tableau vivant. And so that wasn't so extraordinary. It's... It sort of went away when we got to be able to sit passively in front of the screen. And in many ways, it's a pity. But they also, the same generation, had again that quality that appeared in the 60s. They thought you could just take society and shake it and make it a whole lot better just by deciding to make it better. And you got the Fabian Society, which did make a lot of things better. Um, They fought, for instance, for an old age pension And that came into being. And they changed the administration of the city of London so that it was possible to look after the poor and not just shove them into workhouses. So a lot of good was done, but an enormous amount of self-righteousness went on at the same time. And an enormous amount of sort of free energy. Everybody was sort of thinking, we can do this, we can do that, we can do anything. Um, And that also went with what was then known as free love. It was believed that anybody could or should sleep with anybody, not quite, but, and there was no contraception, or not very useful contraception. (laughs) There's some terrible letters from um, James Strachey to Rupert Brooke. When Rupert Brooke had gone to um, Berlin in, intending to seduce somebody and was writing to James Strachey who was in love with Rupert Brooke saying can you tell me about contraception and he draws the most terrible things <laughs> and I mean, if any woman had come anywhere near any of these terrible things drawn by James Strachey he says, I think this is right I think this is how you work it and, <laughs> I mean it's both hysterically funny and absolutely terrifying and she became pregnant laughter <laughs>
1: Well, I remember a conversation we had uh, when you published *Babel Tower*, which is set in the 1960s. That, that at that time you you were very uh, impatient, or you disliked the the 60s idealization of, of childish or childlike behavior and the sort of free love business. And do you do you see similarities between the Edwardians and the, and the hippies?
0: Yes, I see very strong similarities. Though oddly, I I should say that I didn't know much about the Edwardians when I started researching them because I didn't. I didn't like them. I liked the high Victorians, and I liked the sort of gloomy modernists (laughs) after the First World War. But I didn't like this rather sort of idealistic, irresponsible period leading up to the First World War. So researching it was a sort of, you know, it was an immense pleasure because all sorts of things began to fit together that I had known little bits about, and now I knew more. But I still don't love these people as I love I think I love tragic people, really. I like Tennyson and Browning and George Eliot and the Brontes. Well, then I get to love Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, who are, are not cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> Given that you didn't like the Edwardian period, why did you decide
1: to set a book there?
0: It was really, it was really the children's book thing. I mean, I wanted to write something that layered... The fairy tale world with the real world. And I thought that the real world was, despite looking as though it was going to be free, it was actually a very constricted world, which it was. And so I thought, and then you can have this dark, equally constricted fairy tale going towards its inevitable end. The difficult thing was of course that she, Olive is writing this eternal fairy tale and neither she nor I can afford it ever to get anywhere near its end. So it goes on and on winding its way deeper and deeper underground without ever reaching its, its climax. Um,
1: at, at one point a character asks, do you think there is an age when we become completely adult with, with no child left in us?
0: How would you answer that? Some people become completely adult I think people, to to a certain extent, people have to become completely adult when they have a child of their own. And I think what was wrong with many of these children's book writers was that they inflicted the eternal child in themselves on the real children they had by then got. I think if you have a child, it is your duty in a sense to be an adult. You can play with your child, but you are its parent. You're not another child. And actually being an adult is a wonderful thing. I mean, people say childhood is a wonderful thing. Being grown up is even more wonderful. You can do more things. You were allowed to do all sorts of things you weren't allowed to do. You can understand things you didn't understand. And perpetual childlikeness or childishness, is it solidifies into some kind of pillar of salt, or iceberg, if you persist in staying with it. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Front Burner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff, like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear FrontBurner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: A.S. Byatt, the period that you write about, 1895 to roughly 1920 or just after the the First World War, didn't just see a flowering of children's literature, it was also a period of great emancipation of art and class and, and especially women. To what degree do you think greater freedom for women was related to the literature of the time?
0: I think it was deeply buried in all the literature of the time, even the literature that wasn't about it. I'm just trying to write an article, which I didn't finish before I left, about Ibsen's A Doll's House, um, Ibsen's greatest plays. They're not a fact about the liberation of women, but about the entrapment of women. And they're absolutely terrifying. I don't like H.G. Wells writing books about liberated women, because I think he is a, a Randy old seducer who is lying in wait for these liberated women. (Laughter) um to be truthful so um, and Veronica I somehow it isn't it don't work um, no woman could really like that But um,
1: although you have a character who does that and, and manages to seduce all these women and I wonder exactly and, and, and what do they see in him he's, he's terrible he's,
0: they see in him his certainty that they will love him and his complete lack of fear that they won't uh, and this is a terrible thing and then they end, end up pregnant it. and hate him I mean, of course Um, He is horrible. But what I did read was an enormous amount, not so much of literature, but of history about the suffragist movement. And I fell totally in love, for instance, with a woman called Evelyn Sharp. And she joined the suffragists very, very early. She heard somebody giving a speech, and she said to her horror, she realized her life had changed. And she said that once you realize you haven't got freedom, You can't rest. And so she stood on soapboxes, and she described the terror of women. She said their last terror is of being thought to be afraid, even when they've stood on the soapbox and had things thrown at them. And she went on solidly through the war, and she wouldn't pay her taxes because she said, I am not part of this democracy for which we are fighting because I am not allowed to vote, therefore, quite logically, I will not pay my tax. And she was such a nice... The book is just being reissued in England, her autobiography, I am very glad to say. And she was such a nice woman. When the bailiff came to take away all her furniture, she describes what a very kind and good man he was, and <laughs> that um, even when they took away the chair he was sitting in, he continued to be respectful towards her. And she went out to Germany after the war and fed the starving Germans, and she went out... And She was part of a kind of group of brave, good women that it's wonderful to read about and quite different from the kind of dreadful battling among the suffragettes for who should be in charge of it all. I mean, she did go and smash a lot of windows. Um, And she said she was particularly pleased, being a pacifist, to smash the windows of the war ministry. Um, (laughs) um, And that sort of person, it it was a delight to meet. Though she was the best of them, I think. There's,
1: there's a part early on in the novel where the children are asked what they want to do when they grow up, and after the boys are canvassed, someone thinks to ask the girls. And
0: I wonder if you could read that. And you, young woman, what do you hope to be? I am going to be a doctor, said Dorothy. Violet said that was the first that had been heard of that idea. It was indeed the first time it had formed in Dorothy's mind, and she had spoken spontaneously. Doctors and nurses was not a game they played. But she heard herself answer, and suddenly in her head there existed a grown-up Dorothy, a doctor, not sweetly benign, but wielding a scalpel. (laughs) Skinner said that was a fine ambition, although the way was hard still, and he hoped she would come to university college. ''But you must want to be married, Hedgehog,'' said Phyllis, using a nickname Dorothy disliked. ''I do. I want a lovely wedding and a house just like this with a rose garden, and I want to bake bread and wear lovely dresses and have seven children.'' Phyllis knew she was pretty. She was always being told she was. The young floods, Imogen and Pomona, could have been described as beautiful, but they were beautiful in a subdued and uncertain way certainly unlikely to be stunners. They were both graceful and awkward in their home woven linens and hand enamel bracelets. Imogen had full breasts and wore no supporting underwear. She looked plump. She said she had from time to time thought of studying embroidery at the Royal College. Pomona said she might like that too or she might like to stay and make tiles in Dungeness. Hedda said, she wanted to be a witch. Violet slapped her wrist. That left Griselda. Basil and Katerina were very clear about her future. She would be presented at court, become a debutante, and make an advantageous match. Caterina said she hoped Griselda would be as happily married as her parents. Griselda, twisted a puce bow, rhythmically, round and round. Her mother tapped her fingers. Griselda had been shocked, deeply shocked, when Dorothy said she wanted to be a doctor. She had not thought of wanting anything beyond release from puce bows. She had an intense secret life which consisted of reading novels about women reduced to silent attentiveness, full of inner rebellion or of the effort of resignation. Jane Eyre, Elizabeth Bennet, Fanny Price, Maggie Tulliver. But all these had really wanted love and marriage. None had wanted anything so, so destructive as to be a doctor. Why had Dorothy never said anything of this intention? Griselda loved Dorothy as Dor- Dorothy loved Griselda. She loved Toad Fright with a passion she dared not admit to, even in Toad Fright. She came to stay there and was immediately released from her good clothes and set loose to run wild in the woods. There were books everywhere. She had it in her pale head that she and Dorothy might live in the country together and never bother with stays and hatpins and buttonhooks. That was all she had thought of, And now, suddenly, Dorothy's world was black bags, and blood, and sick beds, and grief, and drama, and Griselda was nowhere. Dorothy had a secret. Griselda, her face white, said, I mean to study languages. Katerina said that Griselda had the best possible teachers, and her progress was exemplary. Basil remarked to the surrounding bushes that women's education simply made them dissatisfied. He did not say, with what? (laughs) Griselda twisted another bow, and her mother tapped her hand. Humphrey Wellwood picked up Florian. And what do you want to be, Florian? A fox, said Florian, (laughs) with total certainty. A fox in a foxhole in a wood.
1: A.S. Byatt, reading from her novel, The Children's Book. It's interesting, Griselda Wellwood's literary heroines by Charlotte Bronte, Jane Austen, or George Eliot are full of what she thinks of as inner rebellion, but she's shocked when her cousin Dorothy decides to rebel outwardly by announcing that she wants to be a doctor. She even
0: goes so far as to dis- think of Dorothy's desire as destructive. Why destructive? Griselda is the daughter of the banker and his German wife, who brought the bank to him indeed. He married the bank. And Griselda, as it just said, is going to be a debutante. And Griselda's way out of having to be a debutante is Dorothy. Dorothy is her cousin and she deeply loves Dorothy. And they have shared their childhood together, and they share all their secrets. And the reason Dorothy has never said she's going to be a doctor is because Dorothy didn't know till she said it. (laughs) But Griselda doesn't know that, so she's dreadfully hurt. And, of course, it is destructive. It turns out, when you get through the book, um, I I was very helped by researchers into women doctors by how many exams Dorothy had to do. And she wouldn't have been qualified until her very late 20s because of the years she had to spend practicing obstetrics, practicing surgery. Most of her young womanhood would have gone before she was qualified. It's a bit later on where it dawns on her just how much work she will have to do and just how little outside life she will have. And I'm very glad I did do the research because I don't think I understood how many exams she would have to prepare for. But I think it's just never occurred to Griselda that this world, as she says, of black bags and blood and disaster was going to come. Griselda is very imaginative. She immediately sees it's a life of illness and disaster. (laughs)
1: Later on, uh, Griselda considers the appeal of becoming a new kind of human being who won't be forced to choose between thinking and sex. But her friend says that if women change and men don't, women shall be
0: poor monsters. (laughs) Do you think she's right? It's a phrase I myself used to use about myself when I was an undergraduate. It comes from Twelfth Night, and it's when Viola is dressed as a boy. And she's, she's talking about Orsino, and she says, and I, he, he, is, he is attached to this woman who is in love with me as a man. And then she says, and I, poor monster, fonders much on him. And I always thought that a woman who had as at work, acquired a man's qualifications, was a poor monster. When I was a young woman, men used to say to me about once every four or five months, you know, aren't men put off by you because you're so well-educated? I mean, this may now not be true. I hope it isn't true. But in those days, it it certainly was. And it was quite frightening, because in every other way, poor women have exactly the feelings women always do do, and the anxieties they have, and the shynesses they may have. And education doesn't change all that.
1: A.S. by it. another big theme in the novel the children's book is the emancipation of class i mean their characters philip and elsie warren are a brother and sister who worked in the in the potteries their mother before them and she actually died of lead poisoning from the paint that was applied to the the china and philip and elsie are taken up by this charmed circle of fabians and and, and so on they're criticized uh, not not philip and elsie themselves but the fabians are criticized for their sentimentality and, and are
0: described as porcelain socialists. What, what is that about? Porcelain socialists was a phrase of Dostoevsky's. I think in the phase when he didn't like socialism, which was most of the time. Um, and <laughs> it's to do with China teacups in Dostoevsky. And he sees them as sitting there forming sort of idyllic country views where the peasants and everybody else are on the same teacup and everything is perfect. And Dostoevsky says it just won't work like that. And um, I had a Russian anarchist because the Fabian socialists did have sort of Russian anarchists that they had rescued dotted about the English countryside, living in English houses next to the Fabian socialists. And these were real Russian anarchists. And the one I fell in love with, which they all fell in love with, who was called Stepniak, they slowly realised he had actually murdered somebody by coming up to him with a really sharp knife rolled up in a newspaper and driving it into his heart. And they they didn't quite know what to think about Stepniak. Um, Then Stepniak went and fell over on a railway line and a train ran over him. And everybody said it was going so slowly, you know, why on earth couldn't he have got out of the way? And somebody else said he'd been so long in the Peter and Paul prison He was used to not hearing anything because the racket in there was so great he closed his ears. Anyway, whatever happened, he got killed. I regret not getting more of him into the book, but it's a Russian phrase, porcelain socialists.
1: Real porcelain and ceramics, of course, play a very large part in this novel. And several characters are skilled ceramic artists. There are references to the French master, Bernard Palissy. There are many descriptions of beautifully decorated plates, bowls, pots, and jugs. Why did you want to devote so much time to ceramics? I've always
0: been in love with glass. And glass has come up in all sorts of things I've written. Glass is my, you know, something you can look at and at the same time through is my basic metaphor for writing or art of any kind. I thought, I can't do glass again. That was the first reason. (laughs) Um, The second reason was I am descended from potters. All my mother's family were in the potteries in the five towns in Arnold Bennett country in the middle of England, and they died of things like lead poisoning, and there was a legend that my great-grandfather had invented a lead-free glaze, and then I discovered that this is just what everybody says about anybody whose ancestors come from the potteries. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect that my great-grandfather had invented no such thing. But there was a pottery called Bloor Derby, and my mother's maiden name was Bloor. So... And I have one plate, which is a blue Derby plate at home. And I've, I think I've always avoided pots because of avoiding my family and suddenly came sideways round to it. And my daughter lives next door to a very great modern potter. And she asked him if he would help me. And he invited me to his studio. His name is Edmund Duval. And he actually let me... He suggested it, I would never have dared ask, but he let me put my hand in a pot as it was going round on the wheel. And he told me exactly how furnaces work. And he was extremely contemptuous of art and crafts pottery because he said it leaks. Um, So that was very good for me and I really learned something.
1: Because e- even aesthetics has a political or ideological dimension. A, 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 one character says, when the just society comes, we'll have quite other ideas of beauty. And he sets Sevres China against William
0: <laughs> Morris Arts and Crafts. I mean, wh- what are the, the implications of that? Well, William Morris hated Sevres China, and so did most of the arts. Um, Edmund said to me that in that time, people from the Arts and Crafts movement really believed that anything porcelain was wicked because it was made for the upper classes and because it didn't come from the good grainy earth of the countryside (laughs) and it should be sort of natural and peasant-like and handmade. And it was a kind of wild ideology that came and went. It's still around a bit. It's lasted for a very long time, the sense that earthenware good decorated china badge sort of thing. But I like both.
1: You also write about another type of ceramic that's, that's quite different uh, from these English pots and bowls. I'm referring to the porcelain or wood or clay faces of marionettes and, and puppets that come from Germany. What interested you in these figures? I can't remember how the puppets
0: got in. Um, they have quite a big place. They play a huge part in it and I think there's something to do a long way back with the children's stories the sense of something unreal that becomes very real when it starts moving but then I being me started researching puppets in every conceivable direction and I went to Munich to the puppet museum and my German translator lives near all these German puppets and took me remorselessly, in fact, I, my husband sort of was found leaning against a pillar completely asleep, so, 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 so fierce was this tour of the Munich Puppet Museum, but, uh, but um, um, and then I took a lot of books home and read them, and it became, I think it became German partly at that point, because all the puppets were German, and so the characters ended up going to Germany. And one of the things I then found out was that before the First World War, which I came to see was almost entirely unexpected by everybody, um, everybody just went to and fro from Germany to Britain, which, of course, in my childhood was unimaginable. What Germans did was bomb you.
1: But your novel underlines just how close England and Germany and English and German cultures were during the Victorian and Edwardian periods. I mean, not only was Kaiser Wilhelm Queen Victoria's grandson, but there was so much cultural and, and political exchange. I mean, how, how could two societies who had so much in common end up in such a bloody war?
0: Well, m- one of the things I found was that there was a puppet play in Munich in a sort of satirical cabaret called the Elf Elfschaafrichter, the 11 executioners. Um, And these 11 would march onto the stage. And then they played this puppet play called Eine Feine Familia, which was a satirical sketch about the crowned heads of Europe, who were, of course, just like the characters in my novel, an endlessly quarreling family. And the Pope, I mean, not the Pope, he was celibate. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) the Kaiser. The Kaiser was related related to the Tsar, who was related to the British royal family, who was related to the Danish royal family, and everybody was always annoying somebody, and they were always in a forest killing all the creatures with extremely complicated weapons for killing them with. And when Queen Victoria died, the Kaiser made his way very rapidly to Britain, to the great annoyance of the then Prince of Wales, and came to the deathbed and took over and he sat beside her, I hadn't known this at all, he sat beside her, he had a withered arm, but he supported her as she died with his other arm. And then he told them all what to do about the funeral and said that there sh- he it was he who said there should be a Union Jack draped over the coffin. And the coffin was then drawn away on a gun carriage and it stopped working and came to a halt. The Kaiser leapt from his white horse and said, that's because you've harnessed up all these horses wrongly, do it like this, do it like that. And and they got it right and went to the funeral and the people in the streets of London at that stage sort of cried hurrah for Kaiser Bill, hurrah for Kaiser Bill. Uh, It was weird. Um, And right to the very end nobody thought it was coming, they were all just arguing. Although in in the
1: novel you make distinctions between the German characters who seem to be real anarchists and there are real assassinations going on all over Europe, and these English
0: porcelain socialists. Well, I do think at that period, anyway, Europeans of all sorts were more ferocious than the English. When I read um, Conrad's novel about the, the secret ex- agent, the secret agent about the explosion that went wrong in Greenwich. I was a young girl, and I just didn't understand. I couldn't imagine why this might have happened. And, of course, what it was was part of a sort of endless series of explosions all over Europe which killed people and killed quite a lot of crowned heads and important people. Um, And they did, in Britain, which I hadn't known at all, blow up a great part of the House of Commons, but nobody had ever taught me that in a history lesson. And on the whole, one feels the English were not so given to direct action or to feeling that if they didn't knife the queen, they weren't a good socialist. But whereas there were people in Germany and Russia with good reason, and France and Italy and Spain, who felt very strongly that they should kill the royal family, and quite a lot of them did. Do you see any connection between the fantasy and fairy tales that we
1: talked about earlier and and the war? Um, that, that contributed to the war in any way? I mean, we can make connections that Kipling's Puck of Pooks Hill was published in 1906, the year that the Dreadnought was built. I mean, I don't know if you can I think see when any I said, causality or anything.
0: No, when I said that, I think I saw a gulf. You know, Puck of Pooks Hill is somebody who became a sort of raging nationalist, anti-German shouting person. But I don't think at that stage he was writing Puck of Pooks Hill, which is about the English countryside. And I think they all went on right up to the very verge of it, completely innocent of the fact that it was going to happen. Um, there was this man who was writing these novels, Le, I can't pronounce him, my husband can, Le Quex or Le Coups, about invasions of Britain by foreign forces. And he wrote a sort of terrifying novel about Um, the German forces descending on the British countryside, which ended up with a German spy being executed in the Horse Guards Parade by some bearskin-hatted English soldiers, an English clergyman praying in the background, because there is an illustration. But the novel he wrote not very long before that, which was also a British invasion fantasy, was about the French invading Britain, and causing great anguish to the British countryside, and in both cases they were defended by kind of wonderful British secret agents who went out and stopped them from destroying the countryside. It was a fantasy. It wasn't, there wasn't, one feels, a real genuine apprehension of what was coming at all. It's a devastating place to be headed towards, in a sense. Well, it hits it hits history like a sort of knife, and it, it hits the lives of my characters like a knife. The more so because I am so unhistorical that when I started inventing this story, I wasn't intelligent enough to realize that all the children would reach adulthood with the war, so I was almost as surprised <laughs> as they were. <laughs> we, we once talked about good endings, and you said that some of
1: your favorite endings are ones that, that make you weep with happiness, for instance, Peter Pan or The Railway Children, where someone you th- thought was dead is restored to you. And I, I won't give away the ending of your novel, but I'm curious do you think that you can have a fairy tale ending to a
0: grown up novel? I used to think not, but that was because, let us stop speaking of children or grown ups, because I was an adolescent. And an adolescent thinks that a story isn't grown up if it doesn't end badly. Um, because badness is truth, thinks the adolescent who isn't anywhere near dying. Um, When you're old and have lived through a lot of things, you realize readers and human beings actually have a right to a partially at least happy ending, that it isn't childish, that it is the nature of books. And I have enjoyed so many endings that could have not happened. And equally, I hate books that offer you two alternative endings. I think that's... (laughs) (laughs) That's real cheating. Um, And um, so, also, I mean, the novel had shredded me a bit by the time I got to there. It needed, for some people, to survive, um, and to survive all right. So, (laughs) what I should say is, this is a book without a central character. So there's an awful lot of endings. (laughs) It's great to have a chance to talk to you
1: again. Thank you very much.
0: Well, it's great to have a chance to talk to you again.
1: A.S. Byatt on stage at the Blue Metropolis International Festival in Montreal in 2009. Her novel, The Children's Book, is available in paperback from Vintage Canada. A.S. Byatt died on November 16th. She was 87. Her most recent title is a selection of stories called Medusa's Ankles. She also published a nonfiction book in 2016 about two 19th century designers whom she admired. It's called Peacock and Vine on William Morris and Mariano Fortuny. Last year, her short story, The Gin in the Nightingale's Eye, which won the 1995 Aga Khan Prize for Fiction, inspired the fantasy film 3,000 Years of Longing. Directed by Mad Max filmmaker George Miller, it stars Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. Today's show was produced by Sasha Hastings. Katie Swales is also producer. The associate producer is Melissa Gismondi. The senior producer of Writers & Company is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtell. Next week, Sigrid Nunez, Her eighth title, The Friend, won the 2018 U.S. National Book Award. She followed it with What Are You Going Through? Now she has a new novel, The Vulnerables. That's next week. I hope you'll join me.